0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Mad in America podcast. And this week we present a special episode to join in the many events being held for World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day. July 11th, 2019 is the fourth annual WBAD and it's also the 90th birthday of Dr. Heather Ashton, author of the Ashton manual and a prominent figure in the benzodiazepine community dr ashton's birthday was chosen for w bad because of her passion and drive to get the problems of benzodiazepine injury recognized she is now retired of course but in her working years she spent a great deal of her clinical time personally helping and supporting those who are having difficulty from prescribed benzodiazepines If you'd like to get involved and follow along with the awareness events occurring all day today, then head over to World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day's Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash worldbenzoday, or on Twitter follow them at worldbenzoday. Also on social media you can follow the hashtag worldbenzoday, and you can also visit WBAD online at w-bad.org. And before we get started with the interviews, I just want to thank Nicole Lamerson. Nicole is Lead Operations Volunteer and Virginia Representative for WBAD, and without her help and support, this podcast wouldn't have been possible. So, later in the podcast, we'll hear from physician Dr. Christy Huff, who talks of her own experiences of taking and withdrawing from Xanax and Valium, and also her work with the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. We also hear from addiction specialist and medical consultant to the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, Dr. Stephen Wright. But first, I'm delighted to have had the chance to chat with Janelle. And Janelle is a WBAD volunteer, but she's also project manager for WBAD Rocks of Kindness, which is an intriguing way of both raising awareness and of getting a conversation going about prescribed harm. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you so much for joining me to chat for the Madden America podcast. And uh, I'm really grateful to get, get the chance to talk to you a little bit about the Rocks of Kindness movement. And for those out there who may be unfamiliar, just you know, in a broader sense, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the Rocks of Kindness movement.
1: Well, hi, James. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, I would love to talk a little bit about how the Rocks of Kindness movement began, just the general movement. It gained nationwide popularity, especially here in the States. And it really got its start in 2015. Um, There was a woman named Megan Murphy, and she was going through some really tough times in life and going through a lot of grieving, personal things that went on in her life. And she was kind of on this personal healing journey. And she began walking the beaches in the Cape Cod area. Mm -hmm. And she'd look for different items on the beach, like sea glass. And she'd take a lot of meaning from those particular pieces that she would find. And she noticed as she was out there walking that other people were doing the same thing. You know, they were walking around. You could tell they were deep in thought. They were looking for different things on the beach. And one day she decided to take a marker and write, you've got this on a rock. And she left it on the beach on um, Cape Cod. And this is a needle in a haystack, but coincidentally, a friend of hers found that rock Sent a text message to her and said, Did you put this rock out there? And, you know, the friend said it was so neat finding that rock out there. So it was at this point that Megan decided that she was going to start leaving more of these rocks with inspirational messages behind on the beach. She started posting them on social media. And before she knew it, she started receiving so much interest and positive feedback on what she was doing. And it went viral from there. And so this general Rocks of Kindness movement grew in popularity from there and it's been going strong ever since
0: fantastic it's such a a wonderful way of connecting with people isn't it and so how did the w bad rocks of kindness project get its start
1: well to go back to the very beginning um, an amazing woman named stephanie williams who has been injured by benzodiazepines and is in the long process of healing she is the founder of w bad rocks of kindness One day on Facebook, Stephanie noticed a friend of hers posted a picture of a painted rock that he found while he was out bike riding. The rock had info on the back of it directing it to be posted on a Facebook page. So she was really intrigued by this idea of rocks of kindness, and she had this light bulb moment realizing that this creative idea was something that could help raise awareness for WBAD. It was a unique outlet That could not only spread kindness and awareness, but it could also help those who've been injured have some kind of a positive outlet to get involved in. So she ended up creating a closed group on Facebook and started inviting people to join in, and they began painting rocks in her group. And so this is where I got involved. And just a little background, since year one of WBAD, the first year that we we had a WBAD, I have been involved in helping out where I could with some smaller behind-the-scenes stuff. And I had previously written a blog post for WBAD on their site. And when I saw Stephanie's post about this rocks, the kindness group that she had started to raise WBAD awareness, this like really struck me as the perfect idea for a blog post. And I, I kind of went back and forth on it. Should I do this? I wasn't feeling the greatest at the time. Do I want to commit to this? But something just told me, go for it. So I ended up joining the private group that Stephanie had created for this. And I joined to kind of do an investigative report, if you will, on it and just get the scoop on what what is this. And the more I learned as I was collecting the information and the rock pictures and interacting with these people, the more interested and excited I personally started getting about the project. Um, And I decided that this was something I definitely had to try out. And then I was asked if I'd be willing to set up the social media aspect of the project so that we could have a way for the public to connect with us, and so I began working on the logistics of the project, setting it up, setting up the social media presence, and you know, just kind of piecing it all together and figuring out the best way for us to be able to to reach people.
0: Thank you, Danielle. That's that's great. And I had a look at the Facebook page earlier, and I have to say, you know, it's beautiful to see all those all those painted rocks and the pictures that people are sharing. So I just wondered, uh, how does rock painting help to bring awareness surrounding the risks and dangers of benzodiazepines taken exactly as prescribed
1: yeah many people probably wonder exactly okay so you're you're painting rocks what does that do for awareness building i've actually seen people ask this and um and the truth is it's an incredibly brilliant way to raise awareness just to kind of describe the process of it the individuals of course paint and decorate the rocks and then they plant them in public now the key to this is the information that we place on the backside of the rocks. This is how we get people back to us. How how we connect. We either handwrite or affix printed labels with information on the backside of the rocks, and we include something like, "Please post a picture of me on our Facebook page." You know, just a little message directing people to our page, and perhaps the name of our page, of course. But we use, we always use our established hashtag which is WBADROCKS, W-B-A-D-R-O-C-K-S. So for those who might not understand how the hashtags work, that, that's a really critical part of social media these days, and it works like a cataloging system with social media as well as places like Google. So you could go put in our hashtag. Um, we're on Instagram, you know, Facebook, Google, and you'll come up with hits with us using that hashtag so this way people can easily find our public page by searching our hashtag on facebook Mm. so we direct people to do that so when a rock finder they find one of our planted rocks when they come to the page we have awareness information posted there and additionally after they post a picture to us we try to individually post comments to them that include information about us Mm. just stating we're not your typical rock painters and also sharing the WBAD website, and we also share the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition's website as well. We're just trying to get some information out to them. What's really neat too is that when an individual posts on our public page on Facebook, the way Facebook works, a lot of times when you post on something that's public, your circle of friends and your connection on Facebook. Um, may have access to seeing what you've posted and what you're engaged in publicly. So that kind of widens who might be seeing this. So there's a really big possibility of spreading awareness, and it goes beyond just that one rock finder. They get engaged with this, and a lot of times we do see mutual friends of theirs are coming by, checking out the page, liking it, interacting um, so it's really neat how that social media aspect works in helping to spread awareness beyond just the one person who found that rock. And then what I really want to stress is that it's a really unique awareness-raising outlet. Like, as you know, this whole topic, trying to raise awareness of you know the dangers of prescribed drugs and medications that so many people are are on, it can be a really misunderstood, controversial topic. People get defensive about it. And what we found is that these painted rocks and this art is serving as a buffer, a really nice buffer. And so instead of just trying to push this information out, people in the public are finding these beautiful painted rocks just randomly planted, kind of throws them, you know, throws them off guard. And they're just like, wow, this is so cool. And they get curious. And on their own accord, they come to us, post to us and start learning about us out of their own curiosity. And we've not had one negative bit of feedback from anyone from the public instead it's like we're just making lots of connections and it's the rock arts really helping to start conversations
0: excellent well that's that's such a lovely description of it and i you know i love how i you know as you said their art brings people together and it's you know it's about the art but it brings people into a community that they might not have been aware of previously
1: We've actually had the comments where, oh, I didn't know about this. I'm gonna make sure to tell other people and we've had people start painting with us who they themselves weren't even injured by benzodiazepines or maybe they did know somebody, but they just thought our cause is really good. I mean, it's this is really working.
0: Thank you, Janelle. So can anybody get involved in rock painting for, for W Bad or is this just kind of for those with artistic talents or backgrounds?
1: Yes, this is this is a big one. Um, Absolutely. Anyone can get involved. Um, People do tend to have a preconceived notion that in order to get involved, you you have to have some kind of experience with painting and art and this big background and all this talent. And it's just not true. Um, Anybody could get involved in this. And we're even having kids getting involved in this. Some of our rock painters have kids and they've gotten their kids involved in the painting. It can be fun for anybody and a great distraction. and. The beauty of this is that a number of the people who are now enthusiastic W Bad Rock painters, including myself, (laughs) initially we had no idea how much enjoyment we were going to take out of this and no idea the untapped creativity that we had inside of them. Like for me, I had, I didn't have that very good art experiences when I was in school. Like I didn't like my art teachers very much and I hated being under pressure. Mm. Um, Like, oh, we have this project to do and you have you know a half hour to do it in i did not like that so i had these ideas that i that i sucked at art i i wasn't i wasn't good at it so when i tried this i really thought i was going to be bad at it and it turned out i really enjoyed it and i had some talent buried there and a lot of people are finding that and i wanted to mention too in case you know any of the listeners are are interested in this if painting with brushes isn't your thing, um, a lot of us are using, we do use the paint and the brushes, but there are these paint pens, they're non-toxic acrylic water-based paint pens that we're using. So it's almost like drawing and coloring on rocks, where some people are finding that it's easier and perhaps less messy mm-hmm. than using paint and brushes. So it's truly just a really affordable therapeutic outlet that, Anybody, you know, there's something for for anyone who is interested in trying it out and rock painting for the cause. And um, it's not uncommon for people who have been injured to have chemical sensitivities and just sensitivities in general. And that's a concern, you know, we get is, am I going to react to the products? Are these toxic products? Of course, this is a huge concern. And there are many non-toxic, water-based products to choose from. And we do encourage that use of non-toxic products. I personally was concerned about this and even had anxiety over it because I've had, I'm extremely hypersensitive and have reactions, very chemical sensitive. And I wondered if even a benign scent of a non-toxic paint might be too much for me. And I've had no problems. Um, The people in our group that are sensitive, no problems. So I don't notice any, any issues. There's no reactions and So we do encourage the use of these non-toxic products and we also stress environmentally friendly practices when people are painting and planting these rocks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I I love the inclusivity of it and, you know, the fact also that you're thinking of the people doing the the painting as well as the people who might be finding the rocks. Would you say that W Bad Rocks of Kindness has has been a success so far?
1: Yes, it's been a huge success and It continues to be an incredible success in so many ways. As a whole, it's a huge success, but there are also different areas to really look at, different layers of this. So I just like to take a minute to kind of explain those areas. For, For me, like when I break it down, there's like three really important areas. And the first area of success that I see is with the individuals, the individual impact that it's having on those who are involved. There are studies showing the therapeutic value of art and creativity and healing, both mentally and physically. and you know this is why we see college programs and careers revolving around art therapy because it really works. There's even studies showing how engagement with art and creativity affects the brain and can aid in regeneration of neural pathways. And um, I was also just reading an article that our group moderator in our closed group, it's Stephanie Williams, Chris Wilson and myself, oversee the group. And Chris just shared a really great article and it spoke on the benefits of creativity as it pertains to anxiety and stress reduction. And because the arts and creativity help you tap into something deeper inside of you, like more on a subconscious level, it can even end up aiding and gaining more self-awareness resiliency, confidence in making decisions, and allowing for more peace of mind and a sense of well-being. So you can see it's, it's much more than just a distraction, a time passer, or a coping strategy, like getting involved in arts and crafts. Any form of creativity can actually have a very real positive healing effect on the brain and body, and long-term effects as well. Um, helps a lot of people who are going through traumas. It's just... Art and creativity is amazing. I think it's overlooked often by people, but it's it's very beneficial. And it's helped those who are really suffering and struggling, you know, in, in our group and in our community, the people who are going through benzodiazepine, which are all an injury. The suffering and struggling that you see is just, it's, it can be so horrific and so far-reaching. And this project has allowed some of these people to start feeling proactive, Gives them something to look forward to. And due to the very intense symptoms of benzodiazepine withdrawal injury, and while in the healing process, many find it difficult to get out of the house physically. And also, you know, there's the fear aspect. You're in hypervigilant mode. It's hard sometimes to be outside of your house. And having this goal of getting out to plant those rocks that they've painted and taken such pride, you know, painting, and then having the support of our group. Because as I've mentioned, we, we congregate in this group. This is where we paint and everything. W Bad Rock Painter, the group of us, cheering everybody on. And it's been a really positive thing. It's gotten people out of their houses. It's tapped into creativity. And for some, it's opened this other door, this other aspect of art and painting beyond rock painting. So it's almost been like this launch pad of creativity. And it's opened doors that many of us never had any clue you know, we're there. And I I just want to quickly touch on also this, the group that we do, that we do run, Stephanie, Chris, and I, it's a positive, encouraging place. And we, we view ourselves, as kind of like a little family, you know, anybody is welcome and we're very encouraging. There's no tolerance for drama in there. And we, it's not your typical support group in there. Um, We have some light symptom talk once in a while or updates but in general, we're getting a lot of feedback that people just love that there's this, this place they can go to this group to just focus on the rock painting and the awareness raising. And we do run little challenges in there and every once in a while, even some giveaways. It's just it's been such a positive experience for all of us. Like the feedback we're getting is is wonderful among the painters. So the overall impact it's had on us as individuals and also as a group of us coming together, it's just been so positive and such a huge success. Like I feel like that's, it's such a personal success. That's just the one aspect. Of course, we, we next have the kindness aspect. That's been a huge success too. Just we're doing something positive, putting kindness out in the world. And in the rocks, the kindness world, it's pretty much known that there will be a lower rock return. This means that You could put out a bunch of painted rocks, but the percentage that are actually going to come back on social media that you're going to see again, it might be kind of low. And we're always reminding people that that's not a measure of success because every single rock that we put out is on a journey. It has the capacity to touch someone's life. And even if they don't necessarily find us online or get the awareness info, you know, maybe it was just what that person needed at that moment to lift their spirits, put a smile on their face And that's okay. Like we we're just trying to do something positive here. We want to raise awareness. That is our end goal. But there's a lot of different facets to this. It's never a failure. And then finally, the awareness raising aspect. That's definitely a success as well. Since we've officially started this project last fall, we've had inching towards 150 rocks returned to us on our page And these are just the people that we know about who've posted to our page, these, you know, almost 150. Um, Others may visit the page, but not post a picture of the rock that they found for whatever reason. But like I said, every time a person posts, we make contact with them, we give them some information. And it does tend to have that ripple effect. Um, So we're having real positive impact on our public page. Another positive aspect is that it's helped some of our painters connect in certain unique ways through their art with people in their immediate lives, people who are taking interest, you know, family or friends who are taking interest in what they're doing and, you know, and also listening more regarding the benzodiazepine issue and that injury that the painter has sustained. Um, And we've even had painters give painted rocks to medical professionals that they're seeing, you know, doctors and counselors and such. And some of these professionals have taken interest and shown support in what the project was all about. They, they came and checked out the page. So these rocks have turned into a great talking point and, and is creating a lot of curiosity, um, which, again, is an excellent buffer in just opening the doors of communication about this, I believe. So, you know, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, I could easily talk all day <laughs> about all the positives that I've seen come out of this project.
0: Thank you, Janelle. And, and is anything in particular happening with W Bad Rocks for July the 11th World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day?
1: Yes, uh, W Bad Rocks and W Bad teamed up, and we are hosting a rock painting contest that's been going on for the last couple of days. Today is the last day for the public to vote on their favorite W Bad themed rock. So. There are some beautiful submissions. So I would like to invite everybody to head over to our W Bad Rocks of Kindness Facebook page. And it will also be posted on the World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day official Facebook page and get your vote out there for your favorite rock.
0: And, and so is there anything else, Janelle, that you'd like to share about W Bad Rocks of Kindness?
1: Well, I would just like to, you know, kind of in closing say that. I see this going very far. It will continue to grow. We see it growing all the time. And there's so much potential here. So I would just really like to invite and encourage uh, people to consider this. If you're looking for something to get involved in, a unique awareness-raising outlet. And this is something we're doing year-round. This is not just for July 11th and around July 11th. We're doing this year-round. Um, but I would encourage people to get involved. If there's something, you know, if you have kids and you're looking for something fun to do with your children, this is a great activity with your child is the rock painting. And also, I would really encourage people to please support us. Find us online. We're on Instagram. We are also on Facebook. Just keep tabs. And, and I promise you, you you're going to see a lot of pretty rocks. You're going to see a lot of beautiful art. And last but not least, as mentioned previously in our chat here, we do have a closed, more intimate group on Facebook where we all paint, execute our plans for W Bad Rocks together and just kind of support and inspire one another. It's called Rockin' Against Benzos, which is searchable on Facebook if anyone's interested in joining us. But before we wrap up here, I would just like to give a special shout out to all our Rockin' Against Benzos W Bad Rocks members and painters. James, you know, every day I see these people tenaciously pushing through extremely challenging circumstances and doing positive things with passion and creativity. And the way they all come together to encourage and uplift one another is incredibly inspiring. So just a big thank you to all those directly involved in the rock painting for Wbad, as well as to all those who have taken an interest in and have been so supportive of what we're doing. We wouldn't be where we are today and this project wouldn't have the bright future it has if it wasn't for all these outstanding individual efforts.
0: Janelle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, you know, it's such a such a lovely idea and you know i have to say my own daughter Gemma has seen the facebook page and she's full of enthusiasm now to go and collect some rocks herself and to paint some so you know hopefully you'll see some appearing in in the uk fairly soon but uh, i just wanted to thank you for for talking to us about w bad rocks of kindness
1: all right thank you james so much i really appreciate this opportunity to to spotlight what we're doing
0: Well, I want to thank Janelle for chatting, and I really do encourage you to visit their Facebook page to see for yourself the amazing work being done. So to find them, visit facebook.com forward slash WBadRocks, or on Instagram by searching for at WBadRocks. And if you're on social media, look out for the hashtag WBadRocks. And so on to our next guest, and I'm really pleased to have been able to chat with Dr. Christy Huff. Dr. Huff is a cardiologist who resides in Fort Worth, Texas. She attended medical school at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School and completed an internal medicine residency at Washington University in 2004. She was in private practice as a cardiologist in Fort Worth from 2008 to 2011, and following the birth of her child, she made the decision to become a stay-at-home mom. Dr. Huff has personal experience of benzodiazepine withdrawal, and she's dedicated significant time to advocate for better education of physicians regarding the dangers of benzodiazepines, how to safely taper patients off the drugs, and stronger regulation of the prescribing of benzodiazepines. She is a director of the benzodiazepine information coalition. Dr. Huff, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me for the Madden America podcast and To begin to kind of get started, I I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, in particular, how it was that you first came to be prescribed a benzodiazepine.
2: Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the show, James. So, benzodiazepines, I actually took them very occasionally for flying for years, never had a problem with them. Uh, The real problem started back in uh, August of 2015 when I began to take them on a daily basis. I um, had a painful case of dry eye syndrome. It was so painful I couldn't sleep. So I was prescribed what was considered to be a low dose of Xanax to take up to three times daily as needed. And I only took a quarter of a milligram nightly, trying to take as little as possible just to help me sleep while we were trying to sort out the eye problem. So the medication did help me sleep for a couple of weeks, but about three weeks in, really strange things started to happen. I first had some anxiety during the day, and I just thought that was related to the medical crisis I was experiencing. And then I developed the tremor, and I started to think I had some type of neurological condition that somehow tied into the dry eye syndrome. So I went to many different specialists, and I had a lot of expensive testing done, and nobody really ever mentioned during that time that Xanax could be the problem. Um, and while I was undergoing evaluation, I just kept getting more and more sick with more symptoms. I began having trouble breathing, trouble swallowing. I would wake up three hours after going to sleep uh, in a blind panic. My heart was racing. And by this time, I was—I had the Xanax on an as-needed basis, so I was taking it several times a day just to help out with these symptoms. And I thought I was treating my, you know, the anxiety I was having. So, you know, all the medical testing came back normal. And so my doctors just assumed this was psychological. So I was referred for a biofeedback session and the psychologist asked me to hold my Xanax dose for 12 hours. So it wouldn't interfere with the session. And I ended up completing the session, but I began to get ill during the session and I ended up lying on the floor of her office and all my muscles were severely contracted. I couldn't breathe. And I took my dose of Xanax and the s- symptoms just melted away. So right there, that was my aha moment that Xanax was causing the illness. So I got home and I got on the computer. I Google and I discovered the website Benzobuddies, uh, which is a web forum for people withdrawing from benzodiazepines. And that confirmed my suspicions. So basically, I had become physically dependent on the drug And I was experiencing interdose withdrawal, uh, which are basically withdrawal symptoms that occur between scheduled doses, and that can occur with any benzodiazepine, but especially. Or with the short-acting benzos like CNX.
0: And obviously, Christy, being a physician yourself, when you kind of found this information that it, you know, it was probably a, a dependence problem, did that make sense to you straight away, or, or did your medical training cause you to kind of question that and think, well, is it the drugs or is it not the drugs, or, or did it really click into place when you kind of found that?
2: Well, I think when I got on the internet and I found that out, I mean, it, it just it just clicked because everything that they were describing online completely fit. So it, it was obvious and there was no do- denying it, but I will say it wasn't on my radar screen coming into it because that wasn't something we had really been taught in medical school. It was We were taught more about addictive properties of the drug.
0: And so, you know, you got to a place where obviously you've, you've worked out that it's withdrawal and, and dependency causing your issues. So did you kind of decide then to start to come off the benzodiazepines or did you wait before you started to come off? So what, what happened next?
2: So as soon as I discovered that was the problem, I knew that I had to come off because I was so sick. So I I needed to get off this drug immediately.
0: So Christy, could you share with me, you know, how did you actually approach your taper? You know, how did you go about reducing?
2: Sure. So I was able to stabilize at 15 milligrams of Valium. And then initially after all my research, I decided to follow the protocol that was uh, delineated in the Ashton manual. So I cut one milligram for my dose and I, I was basically plunged in the pits of hell with withdrawal symptoms with that. So, um, That was obviously too large of a reduction for me, and so I found that pretty quickly I was going to have to go quite a bit slower than the protocol that she delineated. So I slowed my cuts down to half a milligram at a time, and I would hold those anywhere from two to four weeks, depending on how I was doing. And I was able to use this traditional cut-and-hold method till about halfway through my taper, and at that point, the symptoms just got too severe for me to handle with those larger cuts. So, I did further research on the online forums and I opted to do micro tapering with a gram scale. So, what I would do is weigh my pills and I would shave them with a nail file, and that would allow me to make micro reductions in my daily dose. And that worked well for me for the last half of the taper. It didn't completely take all of the withdrawal symptoms. Away, but it definitely was a lot smoother of a process, and a lot easier to control how fast you were going than that uh, traditional cut and hold method
0: yeah and and so was there a kind of variable time between making one cut and the next, or did you aim for a fixed time, or did you just kind of let your body dictate when you were ready for the next reduction?
2: I really just let my body dictate it. It was all based on how I was feeling and what I felt like I could handle. And so really, as I was going along through the taper, I never really had an end date because I I just didn't know how long it was going to take.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and do you remember how you felt the day after you, you know, the first day you didn't take a tablet?
2: I do because it wasn't so long ago. Honestly, I was terrified about what was about to happen to me because I didn't, you know, you hear all these stories online that people, after they, quote, jump off their dose, that, you know, it gets so much worse. And I would say that I jumped at a dose of 0.175 milligrams of Valium, uh, which Ashton recommends jumping at 0.5 milligrams. So I, I tapered quite a bit lower. There's some people that even taper all the way to zero. Using the scale method, it's harder to get a smaller to to taper all the way down to zero. I would say that it just felt like cuts um, that I had experienced in the past. It really wasn't any more, any worse than anything else I had experienced in my taper previously. Mm
0: Thank you, Christy. And, and you, you kind of mentioned there that as part of your withdrawal, you changed from what I think was a kind of short-acting benzodiazepine to a longer-acting form. And I just wondered how that, how that helps with the withdrawal process.
2: Sure. So I did this based on the recommendations in the Ashton Manual, which is a withdrawal guide for benzodiazepines, which had been written by Heather Ashton she ran a benzo withdrawal clinic in the UK in the 80s and 90s and um so her premise is that a long acting benzodiazepine will be easier to taper uh the, specifically valium for a couple of reasons first is the uh the lower potency of valium so you're able to make smaller dosage reductions with a cuts than say if you were trying to reduce from something like xanax or Ativan. and then also the longer half-life itself makes an advantage because you're getting less peaks and valleys in the drug levels and therefore less peaks and valleys in your symptoms and I definitely fully say it would it helped in my case because it covered that interdose withdrawal symptoms that I was having with the xanax and then I was able to to stabilize on a Dose of Valium and then taper down from there.
0: And did you have any issues kind of transferring between them? I know that that some do and and some don't.
2: I think for me, my interdose withdrawal symptoms from Xanax were so horrible, so violent that Valium was almost like this gift. You know, it, it took those hours where I was just sitting there gasping for air, unable to breathe, my muscles all contracted down. You know, it took that part away and then i was able to make slower smaller reductions with the valium and you know ultimately be successful on the taper
0: i'm guessing you know the i mean people that i've spoken with that have endured withdrawal talk about how it affects not just them but their family too and obviously you're a mother so you know were these kind of issues that you're experiencing affecting your family life too
2: Oh, yes, it was terrible. So, my daughter was four when all this started. She was in preschool, and I'm, I'm, I'm married as well. And it completely obliterated my ability to be a mother uh, because I, w- I was so incredibly ill. You know, for the first two years of my taper, I needed to um, hire a nanny to help me because I couldn't do my basic responsibilities managing the household, driving, caring for my daughter as you name it i couldn't do it
0: yeah it's it's a common experience i think that i've found from others that it's not just dealing with the with the withdrawal is it it's trying to live your everyday life and trying to participate in all the things that you need to do while you're suffering these horrendous symptoms and and as you said earlier trying to manage it all yourself with little or no medical kind of input
2: exactly yeah and i was you know i was bedridden many days so it, it's really hard to be a parent in mm. that situation
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and also, um, I've read in some of your writing, some of your blogs, Christy, that overlapping with your issues with benzodiazepine tolerance and withdrawal, you, you unfortunately also experienced breast cancer treatment. So, you know I wondered how how did the benzodiazepine taking that or trying to come off it how did that go along with having breast cancer treatment did it you know did they affect each other
2: um yes it definitely did so I had started my taper in January of 2016 so it, it was a number of months before I was able to find some medical help and um, get switched over to Valium and start my taper a few months later in April of 2016 I was diagnosed with with breast cancer, and I was already down almost five milligrams of thallium in my taper at the time of diagnosis. And this was an incredibly dark time for me. I would say that going through both cancer and benzodiazepine withdrawal at the same time is really its own special version of hell. Many cancer patients, you know, they are put on anti-anxiety drugs after diagnosis to help deal with it, but I had to face all this fear and terror uh, while tapering off an anti-anxiety drug. And honestly, I don't know how I made it through. You know, as far as how it affected my treatments, I needed two surgeries for the cancer. And of course, this delayed my taper because I had to hold my dose six weeks prior to the surgery to be good and stable to go into the operating room. And then after surgery, a couple of weeks after the anesthesia wore off on both occasions, it sent me into withdrawals, even though I hadn't changed my Valium dose And so I had to hold on the back end of the surgeries as well to help me, um, to stabilize again and aid in my recovery. You know, another thing that happened is my pain wasn't adequately treated because I had a lot of muscle spasms in my chest and the surgeon's typical treatment for that was Valium, at least for the first week. And obviously the Valium wasn't doing a whole lot for me besides just keeping me out of withdrawal. So, I spent months just hunched over in pain and I had to go to physical therapy. And then one other awful side effect has been that, you know, I have a lot of random aches and pains, um, some quite severe and benzodiazepine withdrawal. And, you know, my oncologist has told me, you know, if you have any new or different pain than your normal, then you need to get that evaluated if it's lasting more than two weeks. Of course, with benzo withdrawal, everything hurts all the time and new things do prop up. So I've had to go to the scanner more than once to to get that checked out and just the terror of waiting for that scan, waiting for the results. You know, I, I can't even describe it. Luckily, everything has turned out clear every time, but you know, it's, it's still just an unfortunate side effect that I have to go through that that fear every time
0: yeah yeah absolutely christy i can't imagine how much anxiety and terror you must have faced going through all that together and you know i I think many people probably would have not continued with their taper maybe would have stayed where they are given the challenge that they were facing but i think you finished your taper on march 15th this year didn't you Yes, uh, I did. Yeah, which I, I think is incredibly well done, you know, to, to to manage all that and still continue your journey. And as someone on that journey myself, I know that's no no small thing at all. So I just wonder, you know, how long was your tapering process in total? And, and you know, now a few months out from coming off completely, you know, how, how have things been for you? Uh,
2: the taper itself, of course, it, it took me a few months to find someone to help me and they get transitioned over to Valium. Once I started tapering the Valium itself, That lasted three years and almost three months. Now, there was a little bit of delay in the taper, like I mentioned, because of the cancer surgeries. Otherwise, that's how long it took. And I really don't think I could have gone any faster and remained at least somewhat functional for my daughter. And during the taper, I was pretty disabled. I experienced up to 80 different withdrawal symptoms. It was incredibly rough. I would say that, so I'm about four months out from the taper at this point. And I'm doing quite a bit better in many ways, but I I still have a really long ways to go. But I I can tell that I've probably about the two-month mark I started to have off the drug. I started to have my energy level returning and my head's becoming clearer and I'm able to just do more things and get outside the house. But I still have bad days. You know, I still wake up in in the mornings with that jolt of terror and so we, we've got a, a ways to go, but I'm optimistic that I will recover in time. Mm,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, as I say, I, I think it's a magnificent achievement to 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 come off in the way that you did. And and I, I just wondered, Christy, you know, it might be difficult to answer this, but personally myself, I'm still on the journey, but I, I do have anxiety about, you know, not just will I be able to get off, but if I do get off, will I still be the same person, Right, You know, the other side of the drugs. And I just wondered, you know, were, were you so fixed on getting off that you it was a success for you? Or, or did you have that anxiety about what will be left for me once I've, I've passed the drugs?
2: There was definitely anxiety all the way down just because I was so sick and I really didn't know if I would ever get better. But, you know, for me, I knew that I had to get off because the drugs were just flat out making me sick. And so I just told myself staying on is not an option. You have to get off if if you are going to ever even have a shot at getting better. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just looked at it that way. And I stuck with it the whole way and you know, now that's finally, finally starting to pay off after all these years. And and I do feel like that I am I'm getting myself back. And I, I even felt that, you know, small changes in my personality, even you know, getting towards the end of my taper and under the five milligram mark of thallium, I could really feel that my personality was returning. So the drug had been blunting who I was at the higher doses.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm grateful to you for sharing this story because I, I think there's still this conception, I mean certainly here in the UK, probably in the US too, that a taper is something that someone does over a few weeks or at most a couple of months. Whereas I've spoken to many people and myself is true, you know, a taper for me has been 2 years so far. So, I think medicine has a long way to go, doesn't it, to to recognize that tapering off these drugs is a many, you know, multi-year process for a good number of people.
2: I agree. And, uh, you know, we were definitely taught in medicine that it just takes a couple of months. It doesn't take that long. And that's not the case at all. And honestly, if I had known how long this process was going to take, I would have never touched that drug.
0: And and so, you know, we, we're kind of coming on nicely there to, you know, obviously you're a physician yourself and now you work with the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition and write for them. So I just wanted as a physician, you know, why you feel it's important to speak out about your experiences.
2: Sure. So I will say that the more I experienced this hell and then I was reading what others in the online groups were facing and then I started talking to these people and hearing their stories, it just became clear that... Uh, you know, this is a huge problem that withdrawal from benzodiazepines being so severe and so disabling and taking so long. And really, what it's creating is a, a neurological injury. And, uh, you know, I thought if I didn't know about this epidemic going on, you know, most doctors didn't either. So I decided to share my story openly. And, you know, one of the sad things to me is that it does seem my story seems to carry more weight because I am a physician. Uh, which means, you know, we really haven't been listening to the patients all these years. Because, you know, the bottom line is, patients have known what's happening to them for years with these benzodiazepines, and there there've been multiple attempts uh, to get the governments and medical professionals to listen as far as back as the nineteen seventies, and yet we're still ignoring patients. So, you know, I don't think this is right. And the big reason I've stood up about this is I just can't stand by and watch without speaking up.
0: I recognize what you say about, you know, withdrawal doesn't discriminate, does it? it? It doesn't really matter whether you're a physician or just a regular person or a psychiatrist or a doctor or whatever else. And I, I right. think I think it's so powerful for everybody to speak out, but physicians speaking out it does legitimize what patient experiences are saying too. So, you know, I, I'm really grateful for all medics who, you know, do share their own experiences about the reality of, of trying to come off these drugs.
2: Yes. And I wish there were more of us speaking out because they they exist, but many cannot speak out because their jobs might be in danger.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, turning to kind of online kind of support, which which you mentioned earlier, Christy, you, you've blogged about some of the online benzodiazepine withdrawal communities of, of which you're part. And I, I just wondered, in your opinion, why it is that benzodiazepine patients are turning to the internet for advice in, instead of their doctors?
2: So the simple answer it's out of necessity uh, because medical professionals, as I found out, we're uneducated about the problem and there's really no other avenue besides the internet to obtain knowledge and support. So what we have is a group of people who've been forced to get on the internet uh, to self-diagnose their benzodiazepine as being their problem. And then they have to get advice from total strangers how to taper off the drug and also Uh, rely on these strangers. um, And these strangers are also very sick themselves, rely on them for emotional support. And, you know, if this sounds insane, uh, this is really our only option at the moment. Um, I had to do it too. And, you know, random strangers on the internet saved my life.
0: I kind of feel for myself that if I'm lucky, I might get five minutes or 10 minutes with a doctor, but withdrawal is a 24-hour thing, isn't it? So sometimes yes. I've, needed, I've needed some support in the middle of the night or in the early hours of the morning when I can't sleep and I'm consumed with symptoms. So I, I personally think the support communities are an absolutely vital piece of kind of responding to this challenge of, of uh, you know, benzodiazepine-induced injury.
2: Yes, Definitely.
0: So turning then to some of your work as director of the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, some of it's focused around assisting people in the US with reporting their adverse experiences to the FDA MedWatch program. So, you know, I just wonder what, you know, what was the importance of reporting these kind of events to the regulatory bodies, the FDA in the U.S. or, or other regulators in other countries?
2: This is something that's near and dear to my heart. And I just really think it's so important if you've had an adverse drug event, you need to report that to the FDA. Or if you're in another country, you should have a similar agent or similar agency And I know some people say this seems futile or they don't trust the government, but the bottom line is if you don't report it, then it didn't happen. So I like to tell people to to think of the FDA MedWatch program as a giant database. So it's basically collecting new information all the time. So you're adding your data to that database when you file a report. And eventually we'll be able to go back and use that information to help connect all the dots of what's going on. Um, Just a little background, there was a failed citizen's petition to our FDA in 2010 um, asking for stronger warning labels and even a black box warning on benzodiazepines, and we'd like to re-petition the FDA about this issue, and if we can get more evidence in the form of these FDA midwatch reports and um, also research, then that will really help our cause along and you know i'd specifically like to see people that have experienced severe reactions to these drugs to file reports so specifically if you've had a severe withdrawal experience or a protracted withdrawal or um, attempted or completed suicide then reporting those events will really go a long way and you know everyone always asks us what they can do to help and Filing a report is the first thing I tell anyone that they they could and should do. And anybody can fill it out for you. You can, your doctor, your family, a friend. We also have volunteers at BIC that are available to help file reports uh, for people that can't do it for themselves. Um, And if you'd like to find a link and some information about feeling it out and some instructions, please visit our website at binsoinfo.com.
0: That's great. Thank you. That's so important, isn't it? Because it's kind of down to us who've experienced it to provide the evidence base for this in the hope that then there's some leverage for the, the regulators to react.
2: Exactly.
0: And and also, um, I, I note that you've been involved in some research, particularly around conducting a Benzodiazepine withdrawal survey. So I just wondered if you could share some of that with us.
2: Sure. So I was approached over a year ago by um, Jane McCubry. She's a PhD in communication studies, and she wanted to design a survey to document benzodiazepine withdrawal symptoms in the online community. So she designed a a survey with with my input, and we placed that in the online communities. And we had over twelve hundred respondents. And uh, 98% of these had taken their benzodiazepines as prescribed. So this was basically the compliant patient population, not people who had misused the drugs. And we're in the very preliminary phases of the study, but I can share a few things with you. We collected a lot of information on symptoms and how long they lasted. And, you know, just as an example, people had experienced Symptoms over a year, 67% had reported ongoing anxiety, fear, and nervousness, and 45% had continued memory problems, 20% had akathisia, which is a need to move or pace constantly and can be a very severe symptom for many people. 24% had violent thoughts against others, 55% considered or attempted suicide, and these are symptoms, again, that had lasted a year or more. And I think what's more telling than just a list of symptoms is talking about the outcomes or what are the effects of these symptoms. And You know, 46% had lost a job. 27% lost their savings. 40% had increased medical costs. 50% said work-life was an enormous problem. So it, it just affects all aspects of your life, basically. Additional analysis is underway and we'll be able to split all this data into different subgroups and kind of see which patterns emerge and we're hoping to publish some scientific papers and really get this information out there about how severe withdrawal really is.
0: Fantastic I'm so glad to hear that work is going on because you know I'm sure you know yourself if you look for papers on withdrawal effects from not just benzodiazepines, but antidepressants and maybe neuroletics too, then it's really hard to find anything that doesn't play down the experience into a kind of very mild, uh, minor annoyance for a few weeks for people. And yet these kind of patient populated surveys are showing the true horror and the full extent of, of the problem, aren't they?
2: Yes, it is
0: thank you dr Huff. that was That was really interesting and i'm I'm so grateful to get to chat and also, I wanted to thank you for all of your work in speaking out and advocating and all the work that you do with benzodiazepine Information coalition because you know we we we, we need so much more of that, and we we need so many more like you so thank you so much
2: Thank you, James. It was a pleasure to be on your show today.
0: So thank you for listening today, and thank you also to our guests, Janelle and Dr. Christy Huff. And please listen in to the second part of this podcast, where we chat with addiction specialist and medical consultant to the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, Dr. Stephen Wright. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.